Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you uh, coming out. Appreciate you wiping the car off and sloshing through the slush to get here. You know, it's always an interesting place to be when I uh, live next door and go, yeah, I think we should have church today. It doesn't even look that bad out. So I appreciate you guys uh, doing the harder work of uh, having to drive here. And just to echo Rachel, hope that you uh, have been already and will continue to be blessed by making that decision and being here as we uh, sung together and now um, open God's word together. And with that said, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If um, you don't have a Bible, I always encourage you to follow along with us. You can grab a blue pew Bible in front of you, and you can find Mark 12 on page 848. So in the summer of 2018, recent history, uh, there was a movie, it was actually a documentary, that um, kind of took everybody by surprise at how well it did. Uh, it wasn't really meant to be this big uh, picture, but it kind of went viral, and uh, the documentary was called, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it was based upon Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, to commemorate what would have been Fred Rogers' 90th birthday. Um, so I know we have a little bit of a younger crowd, but by a raise of hands, if you have seen at least one episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, raise them up. There you go. Um, pretty much everybody in the room. I, I, do, I, I remember watching it vaguely. I don't think I watched too much of it. I think I kind of aged out. I, to be honest, I'm much more familiar with Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Uh, for you young parents, it's, it's the new PBS Kids kind of version that's based on that. I, I know way more about that show than I like to admit. Um, but I remember it back in the summer, kind of just uh, online, Twitter, whatever, seeing some headlines that this documentary was coming out. Didn't really think much of it. Um, but then there was this avalanche of response of this positive response of, of people watching it, sharing about it, talking about all the feelings it's evoking in them. And in just eight months since it being released, it's already become the highest grossing biographical documentary of all time. It has brought in $22 million in just eight months. Um, Fred Rogers, you may or may not know, he went to seminary and became a pastor before starting in television. He was ordained in the United Presbyterian Church just outside of Pittsburgh uh, before deciding that he wanted to try and get into television. This is late 50s, early 60s. Uh, this new platform called TV is, is in its infant stage. And he has all these ideas about um, the, fact that, the fact that now regular homes are getting televisions and that people can have access to people's living rooms, that this was going to be the perfect platform to make the world a better place. I imagine him at 90, if he saw the state of TV today, he probably would be a little disappointed. But, but his, his, his real premise, if you will, was he wanted to come up with something that got into people's homes that showed what he called radical kindness to people. He, he wanted to teach people to be radically kind and that eventually led to this show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that focused uh, teaching primarily children, but as we all know, that means parents as well, um, and others, uh, things like acceptance and empathy and compassion. And he had this colorful cast of puppets, and in 1968, they record their first episode, uh, not knowing at the time, what's this going to be like, what's this going to turn into, um, and definitely not knowing that that would be the first of 895 episodes that they would film over the next 32 years. And this tagline that became common knowledge across America, won't you be my neighbor? 
So when this documentary aired last year, and it just kind of took off on social media with a response that surpassed everyone's expectations, uh, just kind of thinking through it even this week, I felt like in some ways it was an indictment on our culture, on our current culture, where you have generations after generations who grew up with Mr. Rogers and now are living in, and many are complicit in, such a divided age, where by and large, people are just mean to each other, like in any way possible, and not just mean, but like contentious, like hatred, like boiling in our blood hatred for people all around us. And if we're honest, it's not just around us, it's at times in us. And that this movie was so widely accepted because it pinched a nerve. It pinched a nerve that there's got to be something better. There's got to just be a better way to live, a better way to coexist, to interact. And I think it hits on a way we're wired that the Bible has talked about all along. That a love for neighbor is not the default description of a person or a culture with our fallen nature, but deep down it's kind of what we want most. And so it's no wonder that love and a love for neighbor finds itself prominent in the Word of God, in the timeless, inerrant Bible. And that is going to be the focal point, one of the focal points of our passage this morning as we continue in this Gospel of Mark that we've been traveling through for over a year now. So would you, with your Bibles open, follow along as I read for us our passage. It's going to be Mark 12, verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is, if you've been around churches a while, uh, a really well-known passage. It's the great commandment, and it could be summed up this way, love God and love neighbor. But it's important, as we're going to see, and those two things are very important in the Christian faith, Christian life, in the word of God, and we're going to see that as we flesh them out. But I have to say, the key to this passage The key to understanding this passage is not the commandment itself, but it's what Jesus says to the scribe at the end. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So we're we're, going to get there, but as we walk through the passage, keep that tucked in the back of your mind. So this is the fourth straight confrontation that Mark records in this Holy Week. We, by all kind of intents and purposes, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. And we've seen four now confrontations. And it's uh, with the people that I've been calling just the religious elite within Jerusalem at the time. Um, but right from the start, if you've been tracking along with these confrontations, this one's different. Right at the beginning, we noticed something's different. Because the first three came in groups. We had the chief priests and the scribes. 
We had the Pharisees and then the Herodians. And then last week we had the Sadducees. But this time Mark says one of the scribes comes up to Jesus. Uh, Matthew's parallel account of this story describes this person as a lawyer, which is just another way to describe the role of a scribe. They were religious lawyers. They were experts in the Old Testament law. These were the heady ones. These were highly educated. Okay, these are the Ivy League kids. You following? These are the ones who get all the book smarts. And the difference with this scribe that we know right up front is that he's not coming with the bad intentions that the others did. He's not trying to trap him. In fact, Mark tells us he was in the crowd watching all these confrontations, and he's been impressed with Jesus up until now. He's been impressed with what Jesus has been saying, and so he comes and he approaches with a question of his own. All right, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of them all? Which one is the greatest? In the Torah, which is the Old Testament scriptures, there are 613 laws. And the scribes knew them all. Ivy League kids, all right? And this was their probably most important, most favorite subject to discuss. Of 613, which one is the most important? And my guess is that this was a common question, a common debate among scribes at the time. Because you know why? People love questions that start with, what's the greatest blank of all time? Who is the greatest of all time? And and, and no matter the topic, if we're interested in it, we love the greatest questions in that topic. Okay, so we thought as of 24 hours ago, we were not going to have church today. Like, we were set on that. Like, this is ice storm. We're not doing that. And then all of a sudden, we're on and we're here. But when it comes to blizzards, all right, a lot of you maybe were disappointed by our storm. Here's the question. What's the greatest blizzard in North Jersey of all time? You go in 96. You go in 2010. Do you remember three years ago, January 2016, 23 inches fell in two days? What's the greatest blizzard of all time? I lived in a house full of basketball players in college, so you can get, like, bet what we debated all the time. Jordan and LeBron. Who is it? Who's the greatest of all time? Um, Tiger versus Jack, right? Who's the best golfer of all time? Um, What's the greatest state to live in in America? What's the greatest college to attend? What's the greatest worship song of all time? I'm sure you guys debate that all, like, just in your homes, at work, at the water cooler. Like, what's the best worship song of all time? But depending on your topic, on your area, your hobby, what you're passionate about, you want to know what's the greatest in that realm because we love it. We love debate. We love putting our case forward. And this isn't even the first time in Mark's gospel that we read about a greatest question. Do you remember in Mark chapter 8, the disciples were arguing with one another. And Jesus goes, hey, what are we talking about? And they get kind of sheepish and ashamed because they go, well, we want to know which one of us is the greatest. So I think it's a common question. Jesus, 613 commandments, which one is the greatest? And Jesus answers He answers actually very straightforwardly. Um, You notice there's no rebuke of this scribe. He's not calling out any hypocrisy. He just answers him. I think he wanted to answer him, and I want to break down his answer in four ways. First, the distinct supremacy of God. Jesus starts by saying the most important commandment of 613 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then you shall love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Some of you know this. It was famously called the Shema. 
And, and it was Moses speaking to the nation of Israel as they were on the brink of entering into the promised land. And this Shema would remain the most memorized and often recited prayers within Israel all throughout its history. And by Jesus' day, uh, devout Jews started every morning and ended every night by reciting that, those two verses in Deuteronomy. Uh, it was, you could say, to Judaism what the Lord's Prayer is for many today. It becomes routine you memorize it at an early age. You say it a lot of times maybe throughout the day or if you come from a religious tradition that the church would say that maybe at the beginning of the service or an end of a service, um, which memorizing and routinely saying something can be a very good thing, but it could also be a very dangerous thing because you can get to a point where it becomes so spoken so often that the power of it gets removed. And so you say it with actually considering the words that you're saying. But Jesus includes this kind of introduction to the actual commandment, just like the Shema did. The Lord our God, Lord is one. And he's making a point there that before you're called to do anything, we always want to know, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Tell me what to do. He says, before you have to do anything, we are first called to acknowledge that there is a single, distinct, unique God that has always existed, and he created all things for his glory. And I find, even today in my own heart, it's often the most simple truths in the universe that get the most overlooked. And nothing is more dangerous than overlooking the fact that there is one God and there is none like him. You know, statistics will say, even in America, 90% of people believe in God. So anyone just saying, hey, I believe in God, like that's not shocking anybody you come across. You, you could go um, and find 10 people on the street and just say, I believe in God. And 9 out of 10 of them will be like, cool, man. I do too. Like, what are we getting at? And we should be very careful in this kind of knowledge. It's just kind of vagueness. A vague belief in God can keep us from being um, very particular about the character and nature of a God that then t- tends to just kind of fall lightly upon us. We tend to kind of stop thinking about it. It doesn't shock anyone. It doesn't move anyone. But listen to what Jesus is saying. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. He says, hear, O Israel. Hear, O Grace Church. That's like, listen up. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. Ray Ortland wrote a little book called The Gospel. The staff went through together at the end of last year. And he has this quote near the beginning. He says, for many... Christianity has become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts. But childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and poetry and music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of the refrigerator. And I highlighted that, wrote in the margins, because you know why? That's a word picture we can all identify with. You have something in the fridge, a beautiful piece of fruit. It's front and center in your fridge. You see it every time you open it, but then what happens? Things happen. You eat dinner and the leftovers get put in front of that beautiful piece of fruit. You go to the grocery store, you come back, fresh groceries get put in, and slowly that that once beautiful piece of fruit just gets kind of bumped and shifted and ends itself in that back corner. Does that happen to anyone else's home? All right? Like this thing was like, this one was ripe and ready to go, but you forgot about it because other things came in. Not bad things. Uh, Maybe healthy things, but this piece of fruit gets bumped and shifted to the back until you have to realize it because you're like, something is not right in this refrigerator. And it's such a word picture for us. 
of how things can go in our lives, where at one point we can remember God was so important to me. Like, I just loved spending time with him. I loved going to church. He was front and center in my life, but then just life happens. And you get a new job that forced you to move to a new area. You had some new friendships or relationships that started. You, you had a financial struggle you had to work through. You had some family tension, and, and slowly but surely, just things get bumped, and, and, and God gets put in the back of the refrigerator, and, and he's there, but it's out of sight, out of mind, until something bad happens. This is why Jesus, in last week's passage with the Sadducees, said, you know what their primary problem was? That they didn't know the power of God, nor the scriptures that reveal him. And I will say, whenever I can have an opportunity, and the text gives me an opportunity to say it, that knowing God, like knowing who he is, his character and his nature, will do more to shape our lives than any kind of self-help tips we get from others. And not just God in general, the God of your Bible, the God who is inexhaustible, who is self-sufficient, omniscient, merciful, sovereign, full of grace, fully just, completely wise, God the Father, our intercessor, our holy, transcendent, immutable, and good God. And that's just getting things started. So before you get to, what do I got to do? The commands themselves are going to be emptied of their power if we don't start here. The distinct supremacy of God. And then he moves on second. The vertical love for God. So the second half of the Shema flows from the character of who God is to what the only suitable response to a God like this would be. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. Now, one very interesting thing to point out that you may or may not know, Jesus adds mind to his list. It's not in the Shema. But he adds it, and I mean, and I don't think we need to get crazy to try and figure out why, but because the premise is the same. What's he saying? He said, you are to love God with everything that we are. Again, this connects to the passage. This is why we preach through books of the gospel, because you see the connections. Two weeks ago, uh, Jesus was asked a question about taxes. You might have forgotten that sermon, out of sight, out of mind. But he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and then render to God what is God's. We're like, what's that mean, render to God with God's? What is that? And the answer was you, me. His imprint is all over us. We have been made in God's image. It's one of the first truths we see in the word of God in Genesis. So, so give God what is his. It's not up for you to decide what you give God. You're all his. You can fool yourself into thinking that it's not all his, but it's his. You know, I, I have, um, being the son of a preacher, uh, vivid memories, second row, um, watching my dad preach growing up. And there's certain things that I just knew where he was going. Like, I could preach that sermon for him, I felt like. I didn't want to. I was terrified. But, like, there were certain things I'm just like, I know what's coming. And any time he came a word or a passage like this, and that word all was in there. Some of you remember his preaching. You'll remember this as well. Um, his classic way would be like, you know, that word all. I, I did you guys a favor. I went and researched it in the Greek this past week. You know what all means in the Greek? All. But I did more than that, he would say. He'd say, you know, he's quoting from the Old Testament. That was written in Hebrew. So I went back into the Hebrew, and I studied Deuteronomy 6. And that word all, you know what it means in Hebrew? All. 
And as corny as I felt, I remember it. Because Jesus just said all of ourselves, not just part, not just some, not just most, all of us. And the reason why we need to hear that is because that is how we live our lives. We want to, we want to say it's most. God, I will give you most of my life. But there's a couple things I need to hold back. Or there's a couple things I don't really trust you with right now. You've burned me in the past. I can't give you all of that. How about 51%? I'll give you majority stake. But I need 49% control of my life. And I heard another pastor say once, you know, I can't give you permission to do something that Jesus forbids. And Jesus calls us to give him all of himself. And, and yet we do get, we do understand this on some level. You know, one, uh, being, a, being a pastor, I get to um, do premarital counseling and do uh, uh, weddings and uh, ceremonies with couples. And, and so you hear people's vows. And, and nowadays, you know, sometimes they say, give me the classic vows, repeat after me, just tell us what we need to say. Others say, no, we want to write our own vows, which is really cool when they do that. And they kind of, in their own words, say, this is my vow to my future spouse. And those marriages and those words, if you pay attention at a wedding, what is being said, it provides a picture, a shadow, an imperfect picture, but a picture nonetheless of our relationship with God. Like this is the language of wedding ceremonies. I'm going to give you all of me. I'm going to hold nothing back. Like for some reason, it's wired in us to want to do that with somebody. If you were to go to a wedding this afternoon and you were to be sitting in the crowd and you were to hear this couple give vows to one another and, and somebody would say, you know what, babe, I'm going to love you sometimes. <laughs> for the most part, I'm going to be there for you. And I'd like to spend a part of the rest of my life with you. A good part, but part. If you, like, are you going to need tissues in the pews like listening to that? Like, you're, you're most likely going to be like, oh, no. Should, should you tell them? Should I tell them? Like, this is not going to work out. But, but the reason why people say that is because they have found somebody and they like what they see and they like what they hear and they want to give it all away. So how much more then? If we're going to do that with somebody who's imperfect like us, how much more then in response to a perfect God who has graciously revealed to himself in his word, how much more then can we give it all to him? In fact, it's the only suitable response to somebody who truly knows who God is. Love him with all you got. That's number two. And then he shifts to number three, the horizontal love for neighbor. So I think it's right here where this passage all of a sudden takes a left turn to all who were listening at the time. Because at this point, I don't think Jesus said anything surprising, anything remotely controversial. What's the greatest commandment? Okay, then he recites the most famous verse in the Torah. Like, nobody's like, that's mind-blowing. Oh, no, he just said the Shema. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. But he doesn't stop there. Oh, before you go, Mr. Scribe, I must give you the second command while we're here. Because it's kind of a package deal. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. First commandment came from Deuteronomy 6. The second one comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Did you know that? Like Leviticus, the book where Bible reading plans go to die, okay? 
Some of you are going to get there soon. Persevere through. It's worth it, I promise. But you're going to find yourself at some point in the book of Leviticus, just law after law, command after the command, and you're just going to like look up like, what am I doing? Like, what, wait, the majority of these aren't even applying to me anymore. And then if you get to Leviticus 19, it's like this oasis in the desert. You're going to find the principle behind every single command that you see and have read up to that point. And according to Jesus, now is the second greatest command, right on the heels of the first. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. What's Jesus doing here? The man clearly asked him, what's the greatest? I'm looking for one. He says, no, I need to give you two. And the reason is because they cannot be separated. If you truly love God, then you will have a love for all those who are also made in God's image, which is you. You've been made in God's image. You should have a love for yourself, a healthy love for yourself, but then a love for your neighbor too. And so in this way, this second command becomes this sort of a litmus test to give evidence to the first one. If you love your neighbor as yourself... Well, that shows that you actually do have a love for God. If I say it negatively, if you do not have a love for neighbor, then it exposes the fact that you don't really love God. You might love something that you projected in your mind as God, but that's a God in your image. You've loved something that maybe you convinced yourself is God, but only if it leads to a love for neighbor is that really true, proved to be God himself. And so... Um, here's where I think the English language can fail us a little bit. Because that single word, love, love your neighbor, it's used for everything in our language. So again, I think people would hear that and go, okay, love your neighbor, sure. But what, what, what does that mean? And then we use it everywhere to the point where love can become like useless, the word. Because in our language, I say, I love my wife. I also love ice cream. And so I, I like to think that my love for Rochelle is deeper than my love for ice cream. But according to our language, we don't have those words. So I could say, I really love my wife, who's not here, but she usually sits around there, okay? <laughs> but you know what? I really love chocolate peanut butter ice cream. I don't even wait till it's on sale. A friend gets a new jacket and comes to you and says, what do you think? And you go, oh, love it. Like you saw it for one second. <laughs> love it. Same word. And so we know in our language that we need context to decide, okay, what kind of love are we talking about? Because it could have a lot of different definitions. Some of you know this, but in the Greek, in the, new, the, the language the New Testament was written in, it's a, it's a language better equipped to describe the layers of love because it has four words, not one. Eros Philia, storge, agape. Agape is the deepest kind of love. It's a love that is unconditional, meaning no conditions needed. It means selfless. It also means never-ending. And so its primary object is a love that comes from God. For God so loved the world, so agaped the world, that he sent his one and only son. Guess which word Jesus deploys here to describe what our love for God should be and our love for neighbor. Agape. 
So even then, like we can be vague here, can't we? Like, all right, I'll love my neighbor. I'll really love them. But we can let that be so vague that we get to decide what that means. So what's that mean? What do we do for our neighbor if we love them? The context of Leviticus 19, the commands before it and after it, provide this beautiful picture of what some examples of that love should look like for our neighbor. And so we're not left wondering or deciding ourselves what that means. Uh, This week in our grace groups, if you're in a grace group, go this week. If you're not, try to go to one this week. Um, We're going to discuss that whole list and decide in our lives how can we practically live this out, our love for neighbor, as Leviticus 19 describes it. But for time's sake, here's the other question I want to address now. I think that's more important right now. Who's my neighbor? So let's say you convince me I need to love my neighbor, and this is what looks like them. Well, who, who is it? Who should I consider my neighbor? A selfless, unconditional love. Okay, let's do it. But where's it going? Who's getting it? This is the exact question that the lawyer asked in Luke's account. I think it was a separate conversation because it happened in Luke 6. It did not happen during Holy Week, but I think it gives further evidence to the fact this was probably a common question back in the day. I think it's, it's talking about a different but similar conversation that Jesus had with a scribe. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers him like this, love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer says, okay. And he sets it up for us. He goes, who's my neighbor? It's a great follow-up question. And that is what Jesus takes to launch into the story of the Good Samaritan. Are you familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? If you're not, here's the Reader's Digest version. There was a Jewish man, and he was mugged by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. And a Jewish priest comes and sees this Jewish man mugged on the side of the road, beaten, and he crosses the street and walks by. Second, a Levite comes, Jewish man, once again, sees one of his fellow brothers in the ditch, beaten to the side, crosses the street, and walks on by. And then third, a Samaritan comes. And when the Samaritan man sees him, he has compassion upon him. Now that's eye-opening because Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They were literal neighbors regionally, but they were enemies in every sense of the word. Had no love for one another. And yet, in Jesus' story, it's a Samaritan who comes, has compassion, bends down, bandages this man's wounds, puts him on his own animal, walks him into town, brings him to the innkeeper, and says to the innkeeper, do whatever you need to do to make this man better, and then send me the bill. I got it. And Jesus says, here's your neighbor. Think of the person you disagree with most. That's your neighbor. And the followers of Jesus, both then and now, are called to love their neighbors. And you can extend that out. There will never be somebody you meet who Jesus would not consider your neighbor. And there are no restrictions on who you're supposed to love or how you're supposed to love them. You don't need to have some grid. Okay, do they believe what I believe? Then I'll decide if I can love them. Do they um, say the things I do? Do they talk the way I do? Do they look the way I do? Do they do what I think they should do in my situation or in their situation? He says, no, you can. Church, you are free in Christ to be indiscriminate in the way you love others. 
You have that permission, unconditional, agape love, meaning no conditions. In the words of Mr. Rogers, you can live with radical kindness in this world. You're allowed. Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, author, wrote a book this past year that I read, and, and she had this quote. It's on the screen. She says, kind comes from the same root from which we get the word kin. To be kind, then, is to treat someone like they are family. To possess the virtue of kindness is to be in the habit of treating all people as if they were family. And so herein lies the tension that the church is called to live out. That the Bible does put forward very straightforward, we think, theological truths that are exclusive. Remember last week's sermon, Jesus said, you're wrong. It's possible to be wrong in the way you believe about certain things. And so we should not shy away from that at all. We should not shy away from exclusive truth statements that we think the Bible are clear on and stand on those convictions of belief. But then one of those commands that are as clear as any other in the Bible are the one we just read. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's my job to give myself to the needs and interests of all people, not trying to decide if they deserve it or not based on whether they line up with what I believe including the people, hear me, that will not love us back or not treat us in any way in the same way. That does not give us permission to withhold any love from them. So let's get very real for a second and not let this stay up in the ethereal range. Let's let this hit the ground. The Bible lays out our conviction at Grace Church that design for marriage is between one man and one woman. And the church should promote that definition with conviction, and the Bible also says that we ought to love our LGBT neighbors in our life. And now the majority culture will say, you can't do that. It has to be one or the other. You cannot love unless you completely affirm. But the Bible says, no, no, no. Our love for our neighbor is not conditional. It's agape. We love even if we might disagree. And our, our convictions, if rightly lived out, will never give us an opportunity to treat anybody poorly. You'll never have permission from that from the word of God. No matter what a church leader might say or a nation's leader might say, in the name of God, you will never get that permission to treat somebody poorly. And so you might say, man, that's hard. Like, I'm reading that. I'm going to go, man, this is hard. Like, you try to actually live this out. That's one example. You try to apply that across the board. That is hard. And, and then it's like, yeah, that's why it's the greatest commandment. That's why Jesus said, no, 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 Mr. Scribe. I got to tell you one more. Because the second is connected to the first one. And it's why, if we can live that out by God's grace, it can and should make the church so distinct in a world of hatred that surrounds it. But we have to be honest. The church's track record with this commandment, it's not great. It's not great. We're good with part one. Love God. But love others with this robust, similar, agape, neighborly love, not so much. Our track record's not great. And so we should be grateful that God's grace is patient with us even as we struggle to live it out. Now, I mentioned towards the beginning of the sermon to keep something tucked in the back of your mind that the most important point made in this passage is not the first commandment and it's not the second commandment, but it's what Jesus says afterwards. 
So let's unpack that as we set to close. Fourth and finally, the key to the kingdom of God. So the scribe hears Jesus' response and surprisingly goes, you're right. I'm actually really lined up with you, Jesus. I'm always debating that with my buddy friends around the water cooler in the, in the synagogues. Full agreement, that love for God and a love for neighbor together outweigh all the burnt sacrifices and all the offerings. And what that just means is all the outward religious activity that we do. It outweighs all your church attendance. It outweighs all what you think about how good that you are. That the inner love for neighbor together outweigh them all. And then Mark tells us Jesus sees that and goes, he answered wisely. I'm sure Jesus, if Jesus can be surprised, was like, whoa, this scribe's not like all the other ones. He seems to be different. And so as you're reading this, you might think Jesus go, yes, you nailed it. But he doesn't. It's kind of a twist ending. He says, instead, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What? It's a stunning line. And it's why it becomes the most important line to understand in this story. Jesus says, Mr. Scribe, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is you're close. Bad news is you're not there yet. You're close to the kingdom of God, but you're not in. Here's what Jesus is saying. Let me tell you first what he's not saying. He's not saying, Mr. Scribe, you're trying really hard, but you got to do a little bit better. You got to love God a little bit more. You're here, you got to get to here. And your love for neighbor is kind of here. you got to get it to there. If you can just do a little bit better on both of those, then you're in. You're fine. It's not what he says. And the reason is because this is what the scribe was relying on. We, we go back to Luke's version, which I think, again, was a separate conversation, but probably a very similar spot that the lawyer was in. Luke says he asked who's my neighbor because he was trying to justify himself. He wanted to say, yes, I love neighbor enough to get in. The scribe was proud in Mark that he agreed with Jesus with the greatest commandments. And he was banking on the fact that if he obeyed them enough, he would get entry to the kingdom of God. So Jesus affirms his knowledge, but does not affirm his method. Listen to me closely. A love for God and a love for neighbor is the result of salvation, not the reason for it. So important if you're going to understand the Bible's message and what it is to be in the kingdom of God. That love for God, love for neighbor, really important. But it's going to be the result of salvation and not the reason for it. Jesus, looking at this man with compassion, knows that God's standard of obedience in order to gain entry into the kingdom is perfection. And the only one who has done it perfectly is himself. And that's why he's been telling us all along in Mark, this is why I came. To do what we could not. To live the perfect life. So that when he lays down his life, just a few days from this conversation, he's giving himself as a ransom for all who would believe in him. So you're close, brother. But you're not in. Because you can't get there on your own. It is only by faith in Jesus Christ that entry to the kingdom of heaven is granted. Because only Jesus, as demonstrated on the cross, perfectly loved God and lived in obedience to his will. 
and perfectly loved his neighbor by giving his life for anyone who would believe. There are some in this room and for sure some in your life that might not be in this room who are close to the kingdom of God. You've been around his word and you've been around this church and maybe you've been hearing the truth for weeks, others for months, maybe still others years, and and you do grasp the message. You understand what God is asking of you, and you are serving others. You are showing this neighborly love, many times better than actual Christians. But you have not made the commitment to Christ. And on some level, there's a form of self-righteousness that you're clinging to that doesn't require a Savior, that doesn't require repentance. My question is, do you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're comfortable to be here and to wrestle through some things and coming and serving. But there is only one way to have a relationship with God, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Priscilla Shire, woman, did a conference based on her material last fall. She has this quote, so powerful, on the screen. She says, How could a God who is so good give all these different people from different walks of life and different backgrounds only one way? That's a good question. But that's not the right question. The right question is, how could a God who is so holy give us any way to have a relationship with him? And by God's grace, he has revealed to us in his word through Jesus Christ. And and if you're close to the kingdom of God, that is good. But you're not there yet. Have you made this decision? There's no waiting period. There's no thing you have to do. It is faith alone in Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, I know many, most in this room, through faith, have made that decision, have been transformed from the inside out. You've been given a new heart This is also for us because you can carry out the calling of God on your life to love God and love neighbor. Like God, through his spirit, has given you the ability to do that, to love others unconditionally with this agape love in a way that the world's not going to understand, in a way that the world's probably not going to love you back. And so this for us, church, this passage has fresh application for us every single morning when we wake up and every single one of our interactions throughout the day. You know, real quick, the elders had a meeting last week, and one of our brothers shared that following a conversation he had in his grace group, brought this to the elder meeting of this thought that they, this grace group wanted to think about going into 2019, and the question was this, what does love expect of me this year? What does love expect of me in this situation, in this decision, in this conversation? And so I'm hearing that, thinking through that as I'm preparing this sermon. And I'm just wondering, what would happen? What would Grace Church look like if it consisted of members who approached every single day with this question, what does love expect of me today? Because I'll tell you what, God will be glorified. Men and women will come to know Jesus Christ and then grow in Jesus Christ if we love God and we love neighbor. So let's pray.